All right. Thank you, Clark. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to be with you today, and I do want to say that this church has indeed ministered to us. Uh, we've just been blessed. We've enjoyed the time of fellowship, getting to know some of you. Thank God I can now I have a mental uh, frame of reference when I, I think about the church up here and when you folks come down, and I do trust that you will be coming. I uh, hear there's a little rumbling under the surface that maybe there'll be another short-term mission trip to Georgia, and I certainly hope that that is true. We would love to have you, uh, love to see you to see the ministry. Believe me, it is much, much different than what it was when you were there before, and God is so very, very good. Pastor, thank you for singing the third verse. It's interesting, when we, when we opened the hymn book and, uh, and Kurt said that we were not going to sing the third verse, or no, it was uh, uh, Chris said that we were not going to sing the third verse, uh, I sort of, my heart sort of sank because I remember so well, that, that's my favorite verse, and I, I remember so well one Sunday afternoon as I was dealing with some inner city, with an inner city young lady who had gone through all kind of trauma and tragedy in her life. And we were sitting in a pastor's study, and I began to quote that passage to her. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, uh, shackled in, in sin and, and, and nature's night. Thy eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Wow, what a picture of deliverance. That's the deliverance that God can give to us. And what a wonderful privilege to praise God. John Piper, and I don't always agree with John Piper, but he certainly has a heart for missions. And I think he hits it right on when he says this, missions exist because worship does not. Hmm? The great goal of God is that all nature should praise him. And rightly so. He is, the great, he is worthy. That's what we read in the book of Revelation. That's what all of creation is eventually going to do. It's going to praise God. Jesus once said, if, if these should be silent, the very rocks will cry out. And, and, and God looks and deserves all of that praise. Missions exist because worship does not. At least worship of the true and living God. And Reginald Hebert wept when he saw them bowing down to wood and stone. He said, uh, God has bestowed such riches upon men everywhere, and yet they bow down to wood and stone. He said, my heart can never rest. As long as I see men and women bowing down to that which is not God. Well, I want you to take your Bible, if you would, this morning. And uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Now, normally uh, I realize that you read the text that the pastor is going to preach from. But in this particular instance, I'm, going to, uh, I'm not going to make a pretext, but I'm going to take it somewhat out of out of context as we read it, and I wanted to give you a background of that from Revelation this morning. Wow, wasn't that fantastic as you read that? The, the, the elders fall down, and, and from every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation, they're praising God. And how does that happen? 
as a result, of course, of the great missionary effort. Now, those of you who are turning to Matthew chapter 13, those of you who, who have some background in, in, in the study of the Word of God are aware, I'm sure, that Matthew is the great transitional book between the Old and the New Testament, the Old and the New Covenant. Matthew is written particularly focused to the, to the Jew because God was dealing with the Jew as a nation at that time. And he was bringing to an end that, that what we call the dispensation, dispensation of law. And he was instituting the dispensation of grace which began at the cross. But Matthew is of necessity a transitional book. The Savior comes. He is, he is presented as the king. His, his uh, lineage is traced out so that there can be no doubt of the fact that he is indeed the legal heir to the throne of Israel. He is the king. He is the son of David. He is exactly who the prophets said would come uh, to reign upon the throne of David. And then he's presented as king in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he gives the, uh, the basis of the kingdom. He talks, we, we talk about it, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And he talks about the kind of kingdom that he's going to set up. It's a kingdom that's not just external, but internal. It's a kingdom that will change us from the heart out. It's not just what we do, but it's what we even think, what we say. And he goes right to the very heart of the issue. And, and then beginning in chapter 9, uh, he goes about doing the miracles. After all, he's, he's made the declaration of the kingdom. Now he's going to prove that he is who he claims to be. And so he begins to do the miracles that only Messiah was going to be able to do. The Old Testament prophets said that he would do them. And now Jesus comes along and does those very, very things in, in, chapters, in chapter 9. Comes to the end of chapter 9 and he's been going from city to city to city manifesting his miracles, and the multitudes are gathered. And the Bible says, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion upon them, for they fainted and were like sheep that had no shepherd. And then said, Jesus, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white to harvest. Now Jesus said, pray ye the Lord of the harvest. The, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few, he said. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. And ladies and gentlemen, that's still the, that's still the great need today is laborers in the harvest field. I want to talk about that in just a little bit. But he said, pray ye the Lord of the harvest. And then it's very interesting, isn't it? That in the very next chapter, he sends out some laborers. He, he commissions all of, the, of his disciples. He sends them forth, gives them power over demons, gives them power over sickness. And they're not only bearing the message of the kingdom, but they are bearing the authority and the power that goes with that message and that kingdom. And they move out in chapters 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 11 kind of comes to the end, to the close, and he begins to summarize what has been taking place. And he says uh, that even though the message was preached and the miracles were done, they did not receive it. Woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in Tyre, they would have repented. Jesus said it will be more tolerable for Tyre in the day of judgment than for you. Woe unto you, Capernaum. And the other cities, and then he, there's a great shift in the message. I don't know whether you pick it up or not, but as you're reading the book of Matthew, suddenly it's not a message about a kingdom anymore. Suddenly he says, come unto me, all ye 
personal message, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And it's a personal message that comes out. Chapter 12 is, a, is the great chapter of controversy. Uh, Jesus begins going through the, the, the wheat fields and his disciples begin to pluck the ears of corn and, and they condemn him and say, why are they doing that which is not lawful to do in the Sabbath day? And Jesus said, well, the priests can pro- pro- profane the Sabbath uh, uh, day uh, for what they need to do because they're sanctified by the temple and there's someone greater than the temple standing in your midst. And then he says to them, there's someone greater uh, than the law and someone greater than the prophets. And chapter 12 is all about that. And finally in chapter 12, the, the, the religious leaders come to their grand and final conclusion. He doeth these miracles by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Now, the miracles were his credentials. The miracles were meant to prove that he was who he was claiming to be. And if you attribute the miracles to Satan, where are you? There, it's, an, it's, an, it's an impossibility then to, to move in faith. And that's why Jesus said it's the unpardonable sin. It's, it's, it, it's, it's a dead-end road. And chapter 13 begins something brand new. In essence, chapter 12 closes with the, with the, not the official, but the implicit rejection of both the king and the kingdom. And so chapter uh, 13 begins with these words. And that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the seaside. Now, I don't know whether you've picked it up or not, but in the book of Matthew particularly, the location of Jesus is always significant in regard to what he's teaching. When he was teaching about the kingdom, where was he? On a mountain. And prophetically speaking, symbolically, a mountain always represents in Scripture a kingdom. And so he's talking about kingdom things. He's on a mountain. Now, all of a sudden, he does something very significant. Now, I, you know, you say, why did the Holy Spirit say that? I'm sure Jesus went out of many houses. I, I'm sure that he walked out of many places, but the Spirit of God found it significant enough to say that very day he went out of the house. <laughs> the house was a picture of Israel. The house was a picture of that particular nation. And Jesus walks, as it were, that day out of the house and then sits down on the sea. And when you begin to examine Scripture, you see that the sea is frequently a symbol of the nation's. The wicked are like a troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. The Antichrist comes up out of the sea of nations. Over in, over in Revelation uh, chapter 17, you have the, the picture of the, uh, the, the sea, uh, the, the great harlots sitting upon the sea. And the Holy Spirit says the sea are many peoples and nations and tongues and and so forth. And so the sea is that picture. So what are we doing? He's transitioning from a ministry to, now watch it, to a nation, to a ministry to the nations. And he's going to be talking about something that 
that is not just significant to Israel now, but he's talking about something that is going to characterize this age in which we are now living. And he begins with that great parable, the parable of the sower. The other evening, I think it was Christy that, that uh, reflected off that parable on, the, on the, the, the different kinds of soil. And that's the key parable of this whole thing. But it's going to be characterized, Jesus said, this age, and that's what he's talking about in chapter 13, get the picture. He says this next age is going to be characterized by sowing and reaping. Huh. What a picture. What a picture. That's what the church has been doing. That's what it's all about from the day of Pentecost until now. The whole age has been one of sowing the seed, the gospel seed, and reaping the harvest. And, and then Jesus said in the second parable, there are the wheat and the tares. And they said, what does that mean? And he said, well, it means that there'll be those that are really genuine and those that are not genuine. They'll always be in the midst. Those that have never really made that full and complete commitment to Jesus Christ and aren't really Christians at all. They may look like it and smell like it and, and so forth, but they just missed it somewhere along the way. And unfortunately, even in a beautiful gathering like this, there are those, and God alone may know, that are the tares among the wheat, those that have never really come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on with one after another how this whole thing is going to grow. It's like a mustard seed, he said, and it's going to grow to a great tree. Not quite a natural growth, and, and uh, there, uh, he talks about the, the leaven being put in, and then he talks about the great dragnet with all the fish and so forth. But you see, it, it begins with the sower, and then it grows and grows and grows. It comes toward the end of this chapter, and, and you see this thing is quite a movement. And then in the very middle, in the very middle, look at it please, in verse 17, he says this. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Now, I know that the, 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 immediate, the immediate reference here is to what Jesus is saying to them right here. But I believe that this verse, as Jesus is engaged in talking about what's taking place in this age, is so applicable to our particular time. Let me illustrate what I mean, and I have to move very quickly. So if you think quickly, I'll try to talk quickly. In the year 2000, missiologists got together and they began to redraw mission maps. They tried to trace something of the, of the uh, way that Christianity has grown, uh, really from the day of Pentecost and on. But they, the, the primary, they primarily began in what is known as the, the uh, period of modern missions, beginning in 1790. Why 1790? Because in 1793, William Carey went out to, to England, and, and that really dates, uh, missiologically, uh, we, we make that the, the date of the beginning of what we call modern, modern missions. And they drew a world map with, with where evangelicals were, that is, Bible believers were located in 1790. Wow. 
there was a little bit of a few evangelicals up in England, some in Germany, scattered a little bit around in Europe. There was a band of evangelical believers in this country, right along the East Coast, a little bit because they, they were the colonies, the early colonies. Many of them, there was, there was that evangelical faith. There was some down in South Africa and, and Ghana and, and a couple of other spots in the world, period. That was it. There was virtually back then nothing in Africa. What had been in India had pretty much turned from an evangelical faith Remember that the church had taken all of North Africa and all of, of uh, the Dardanelles and all of that period, uh, all that area uh, in through the lower part of Europe. And then in 632, the Muslim hordes had poured forth from, from uh, Arabia and took by the sword all that the cross had taken uh, by compassion and love and by the gospel. All of North Africa, in fact, it went on for 100 desperate years until they were stopped by Martin of Tours in France in 17, or I'm sorry, in 732. 100 years later, exactly. And had he not stopped it, you and I would be Muslim today. And so even the Crusades, while they were wrong, were simply retaking some things that had already been taken. But, but that, was the, that was the situation in, in 1790. And then began the period of modern missions, and missionaries went out to India, at Livingston, down to Africa. And he died, you remember, he died on his knees, and, the, and his servants buried his heart there in Africa. He said, we'll send his body back to England, but you can't have his heart. His heart is here. Moffat. And uh, over in China, uh, uh, help me, Hudson Taylor in China and, and, and all of the great uh, missionary notables. Now, folks, let me fast forward quickly because I want to just move. They, there was several hundred years of missions that took place. When I was in Bible school uh, back in the uh, 50s, I was in F MFF. No. I, I, I was in foreign, FMF. Foreign Missions Fellowship prayer groups. Those, those things sprang out of the Haystack prayer meeting that began here in Massachusetts, remember? When five young men were praying for missions and a rainstorm came and they were caught in that rain and they ran and got underneath that great big haystack and continued that prayer. And out of that prayer meeting, all five of them said, I will go. Interestingly enough, they came out of there with a slogan. It went like this. We can do it if we will. We can do it. In, it became the slogan of, the modern, of that era of missions. The first American missionaries went out shortly after that as a result of that. Now, I want to say that it was a very heroic slogan. It was a wonderful slogan. Unfortunately, it wasn't quite true. The idea that we can actually do the whole job if we will. Ladies and gentlemen, look at me, please, especially you young people. It is true today because we are living in a different time and we have different technology and we are able to do today what they could never do 
back there. They could only dream about. When I went to, to Foreign Missions Fellowship there in the 50s, we were praying for India. About 1%, they said back then, about 1% maybe of India is Christian. China had just closed. The, the bamboo curtain had just shut there. And, and I remember uh, staying for about a week with uh, Arthur Matthews, which, who was the last of the China Inland Mission missionaries out of China. How he had been under house arrest for months. Uh, how they had uh, tried to infect his children with typhoid. Uh, terrible, terrible stories, but he came out of there. And back in those days, they said, well, we hope that there's maybe about a million Christians in China, but there's not much hope for the church in China. Uh, back down in Africa, give me, in Africa, there were 8 million known Christians, only 2.5 really Protestant. In South America, we had what we called the Purple Curtain. You couldn't get evangelical uh, teaching into South Africa. In fact, I remember missionaries, rather nationals, that came back. One man from Colombia who uh, had scars over his head from beatings when the priests had laid mobs out. Every time he tried to preach on the streets, a mob would come out and beat him practically to death. We had the Purple Curtain. And then we had Islam back then and and missionaries would labor all through their lifetime for maybe one or two converts. Now, I'm talking about the 50s, folks. Do you hear me? Let me fast forward again. Somewhere in about the 70s, Nixon went to China, and China began to open up a little bit, and the word got back, the church is not dead in China we began to understand that God has been at very much at work even without the, the American missionaries and, and, and things were, had something how happened in China today. Today, the best estimates today in China are that there are probably 65 million Christians in China and the church grows in China, according to missiologists, at the rate of 30 thousand per day that are coming to Christ all over China. It is the most fantastic, remarkable growth that they've ever seen. And they have a missionary vision. They said, you know, the gospel came to us from the West. The gospel has always traveled westward. Interesting concept, isn't it? It has always tra traveled westward. And they said, now we need to take it westward back to Jerusalem. And so they founded what is known as the Back to Jerusalem meeting, um, um, uh, mission, and they are they're looking for 100,000 Chinese missionaries that will carry the gospel across those Islamic lands back to Jerusalem. Do you know the first qualification to be a missionary for that group? You have to be in jail at least once for your faith. And you have to understand that you're not going to come back. It's just part of their whole philosophy. Let me go on quickly. In India, we, we began to realize that the church was, was alive in India as well. My administrative assistant is a graduate of Bob Jones University. She has her uh, BMA, uh, her uh, business degree from there, MBA, pardon me. 
I'm dyslexic. Uh, <laughs> but at any rate, she, uh, her father uh, was a Hindu, saved as a result of getting tuberculosis, and a Christian doctor led him to Christ. Today, from his ministry, they have over 1,400 churches across India. They have another second institute up in the Punjab. Source of Light has six different uh, zones in India. We've had over 700 churches planted just by our men. The last three churches were planted among uh, Muslims. Now, uh, you've all read, I'm sure, about the waves of persecution. Let me tell you why there are waves of persecution in India. There would not be waves of persecution if the Hindus did not feel threatened. They say today that there's 2% Christian in India. That is not true. There are places I know of where there's probably about 20% that are Christian, and the church is growing so fast that the Hindus feel threatened, and that's the reason why the persecution in Orissa, 50,000 Christians displaced, homes built, burned, and people burned, and so forth. I want to move on quickly. <laughs> Mongolia. As late as the turn of the century, there was not a single known believer in Mongolia that we knew of. And then two men came out of Mongolia and were, were, were brought to Christ, went back in, began to work. Now it, be, it began to open. I'm sorry, I said 2000. I misstated. It was back in 90. There was no known believers in Mongolia. Today... In Mongolia, there are 40,000 known believers, and the church is beginning to grow in Mongolia like we've never seen before. Let me quickly give you one more thing among Muslims. Sheikh Ahmed Al-Khatani, president of the Lighthouse for Science of Islamic Law in Libya, is a trainer of, his, of imams. He said in a recent interview in Al Jazeera television, I'm quoting him now, he said, in every hour, 667 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every day, 16,000 Muslims convert to Christianity. Every year, 6 million Muslims convert to Christianity. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot verify those numbers. They seem to me to be exploded. But what they do say is this, Islam now recognizes that there is a breach in the formerly impenetrable wall of Islam. And God is at work in tremendous ways. If I had time this morning, I would share with you what's happening in our own work in Uganda, where over 6,000 Muslims have come to Christ in the last three years. Tremendous things are taking place. Well, I could go on and on. I'd love to put a face on this for you, but our time is running out. So let's, let's just try to sum it up a little bit. What's the rest of the story? Well, unfortunately, the rest of the story is that as these things are happening, and the reason I took the verse that I did is simply this. As I read that verse, I thought to myself, prophets and men of God have longed to hear these things. Can you imagine? Oh, I didn't, I didn't mention Africa. Africa, where Livingston laid down his heart and where they life, and they buried his heart. Today, there are 379 million believers. 48.4 percent of sub-Sahara Africa claims to be Christian. 
as a result of the great revivals that have taken place over the last years. Now, are there wheat in the, tears in the wheat? Of course there are. And, and there's all kinds of difficulties. But, but can you imagine Hudson Taylor hearing 65 million believers in China? And he poured out his life for, for a few. They longed to hear these things and never heard them. And you and I live in a privileged time when we're hearing and seeing things that we've never seen before. But around the world, persecution is increasing. In Africa, cults, especially charismatic voodoo and so forth. Uh, in the recent Islamic conference, uh, the Islamists were calling for an all-Muslim Africa. You know what's happening in Nigeria. You, uh, we just had a, a persecution in Ethiopia within the last month. Let's look a little bit at the missionary force today. The career missionaries, career missionaries, that's lifelong missionaries, have fallen below 30,000 for the first time since the 40s. We were the number one sending nation for many, many years. We no longer are that at all. Career missionaries down below 30,000. There is an aging missionary force. You've heard me say it before. I said about Source of Light, there are far too many people down here who look like me. We need a younger missionary force. An aging support base. Some of you have been faithful, and the reason missions go on is because you have held the ropes. You've been the ones who have prayed. You've, ha you've been the ones who have given. You've made it possible to do what's being done. But unfortunately, your generation is passing, and the next generation hasn't yet learned the joy of sacrificial giving. Let me kind of sum it up, try to wrap it up quickly. Alan Toffer... Toffler wrote a book several years ago called Future Shock. It was a bestseller, if you remember. And he defined future shock like this. He said, it is that state, listen, it is that state of numbness and dizzy disorientation that is brought about by the rapid and premature arrival of the future. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Think about it. In other words, he sensed that around the world, people were sort of numb. Things were happening so fast that they felt they were somewhat out of control. And we've almost come to a place of let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We, we don't really know what is happening, and we realize that we're coming down. And folks, I believe with all my heart, all of the evidence shows that we're coming down toward the end. So the question is this for the church today, in light of what we have seen, in light of what we have heard, in light of what is happening today, what should be the philosophy of the church today? Well, Jesus put it like this. He said, listen, occupy till I come. Now, that doesn't mean fill a pew. That doesn't mean sit in a seat. Actually, the word comes from by a Greek word, pragmatomia, which, from which we get our word pragmatic, or to act in a way in harmony with what we understand is happening. To act. It's actually, the picture is more of being an occupational force. We are an occupational 
pine army, as it were, and we're to be that, and we're to hold our ground and move forward as occupiers until our Lord comes. Five things I want to suggest we need to do. Number one, it is a time for looking at world events with understanding. The windows of opportunity are constantly changing. Number two, it is a time to strengthen the hands of our national brethren. Source of Light has a philosophy of building national boards, giving national control to our workers. They're responsible to us in regard for what they do. But if Source of Light were kicked out of the country tomorrow, the work would go on. It is a time, I believe, for taking chances. I really believe that. There's a certain thrill. Forgive me, I'm, I'm kind of at the other end of things, but I still find it kind of exciting to face a, a bunch of uh, Hindus that are angry because I just got done preaching on you know, the fact that these are no gods <laughs> and, uh, and so forth, and, and just you know wondering what God is going to do with this. And what does it matter? <laughs> huh? You know, one thing we all have in common, we're going to die. It really doesn't matter so much when we die. It doesn't really matter how, how we die. But it matters an awful lot why we die. And I'm concerned about that. It is a time for personal commitment. I believe it is a time for sacrifice, a time to change our lifestyle, our economic expectations which never satisfied anyway, I think it's a time to say we are at the brink, we need to act. Let me conclude by an experience. Several years ago, I was in India on the Bay of Bengal. We had just started a ministry there on the coast with a coastal people, and it was my privilege to be there at about uh, 6 o'clock in the morning on a beautiful sunny day, and the fishing boats were just coming in. And as the waves would bring them in, they would, two men would jump out, one on each side of the boat, and they would grab the, the, the pole that went across the boat and wait for the next wave. And then as the wave came, they would bring the boat up a little bit more, and bring the boat up a little bit more finally. And fish, fishing had been great that night. The, the baskets were filled with these long, shiny fish, beautiful things. And the children ran down, and pretty soon there were kids running up and down the beach, uh, waving these fish in the air, and then the ladies came down from the village with the baskets, and they began to, and what a picture. Everybody was happy. It was so beautiful, and we had just planted to work there. They were all Hindu people, but we, we, we had the hopes of seeing a, a, a work get started there. Two weeks after that beautiful, beautiful, uh, hopeful situation, a cyclone hit, and that entire village was taken out to the ocean. We never saw them again. And I realized that we were a little bit too late. And so often we're a little bit too late. Oh, God, help us to change our lives and our ambitions and our goals so that we are not too late for the little bit of time we have left. Let's pray.
Father, blessed are our ears, for we hear what no one has ever heard before. We see what no one has ever seen before. We see what missionaries died for taking place before our eyes. And we thank you. But we realize, our Father, that even as we see it, we're so very, very near to the end. Help us to live our lives as those that are in your presence, in your light, determined to do your will. Help us to make a decision today, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers for Jesus. Amen.